trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am pleased to tell you that uh, I'm coming to you from my brand new studio. Yep. Yep, we have uh, we've got the studio back in action. And when I say back in action, what I mean is it's uh, it's back in operation. It's been a month. It has been a full month since I had a completely functioning studio. And, and, and uh, you know, this is first world problems, right? Yeah, I was just telling my butler the other day how, you know, it's, it's been such a drag to not have a fully functioning studio. But, but to, to put this into perspective, and who knows, maybe even make you feel just a little bit sorry for me in the process. Um, I am not only responsible for producing this program, but I produce uh, a whole bunch of other programs for other people who have far more important things to say than I do. And, and it's, it's a job that I love. It's, it's something that I, I really enjoy. But um, in packing up to move, it meant, you know, tearing down and getting rid of, uh, well, packing up anyways. We didn't get rid of all the equipment. But um, I had to, had to operate uh, on kind of a shoestring, emergency, you know, sort of thing. And mentally, it has been such a crazy time. I don't know that I've been more stressed in my life. And and so I'm, I'm giving a shout out today. My friend Sean Denovan, who is a longtime radio compadre and instructor for the radio program at uh, Dixie State University, which is soon to be named something else. I forget the name. It's kind of complicated and impressive. But um, Sean came and, and helped me to put everything together. And so far, so good. I'm happy to learn how to do things a little bit differently. The studio's put together a little more streamlined. It's a little more efficient. And there are a couple of buttons here that weren't there before. And just a few different things. But, oh, man. Oh, I am so grateful to live in a time when I can work from where I live. And right now I live in a really, really beautiful place. I'm not going to try and flex on everybody and tell you how much more beautiful it is than where you live. But um, it's, it's really nice. I feel very, very fortunate, and I'm just, I'm so relieved to have everything finally back to where um, all of the live programming back in, in place. It's taken a long time to get there, but uh, but here we go. Oh, and as long as I'm, I'm expressing gratitude for, for modern things, this is a small thing, but if you've ever had to deal with it, uh, this morning I had to go in, I had an emergency appointment with an eye doctor because somehow in the course of moving or, I don't know, maybe it was barbecuing, I don't know, somewhere yesterday... I got a piece of something stuck in my eye. And I don't mean like, oh, you had a little speck of dirt in the corner of your eye. No, there was a legitimate piece of plastic, like, stuck to my eyeball. And not super painful, but uncomfortable enough that I was noticing it going, oh, that's that's kind of uncomfortable. I woke up this morning, I'm like, okay, this is rapidly, with every blink, getting a little bit more than just discomfort. It's it's turning into, it's it's actually getting a little bit painful. And uh, found a great, uh, great eye physician, Dr. James Davis from Vision Source Eye Center. Uh, phenomenal. He and his staff got me in quickly, got it looked at, got it taken care of. And, and thankfully, it was nothing, you know, too major. But, you know, for a guy who, who depends on his eyes, you know, to read as much as I depend on my voice to, to speak, this was such a relief. I mean, can you imagine what it was like in the days where, well, you got something stuck in your eye there, friend. 
Oh, yes, I guess I'll just have to live with it. That or you go have, I don't know, the neighborhood witch doctor, you know, dig it out, (laughs) help you out with it. Man, this was this was just as slick as could be. The doctor, you know, sat me down in the chair and um, put a dye in my eye, which sounds painful, but really wasn't. It was just a little eye drop. He took a look and said, "Okay, let me uh, let me give you a numbing drop. And then he, he pulled out this little spatula, which I'll admit when I saw the spatula, I was like, that thing looks sharp. It looks like something, you know, you would you would use to I don't know rip stitches or something but uh, with the numbing drop in there you know he quickly had the piece of plastic removed put a little antibiotic in there and i'm as good as gold well i'm i'm as good as i was before anyways and that's that's gonna have to do so i'm really thankful for for the stuff that uh, that turns out um well because not everything does you know, we celebrated Father's Day yesterday. Um, there was a great experience to, to to be with family, and and always look forward to to opportunities to to spend some time with family like this. This was interesting, though. Um, it got me thinking about how I don't know if there's ever been a time where it's been more fashionable to blame our parents for whatever issue we happen to have at the moment. My kids and I. Uh, I, I have a bad habit, so I won't put this on my kids. But when we're out in public and we some, see somebody who is really working hard to be an individual, and these days that takes effort, right? Tattoos, everybody's got a tattoo. Piercings, yeah, everybody's got piercings. Uh, colorful hair, yeah, that's that's pretty common too. Okay, a combination of all of them plus something really you know wild that gets people's attention. You know, they've got a hyena on a leash or something. But whenever I'd see somebody who was really doing something that was just so, look at me. My first thing would be to lean down to one of my kids, whoever was closest, and say, you think he's still mad at his dad? Because it was just implied. You know, whatever's going on here, this is probably his dad's fault. Now, unfortunately, culturally, that has been a very common approach. I mean, don't we joke about, you know, Dr. Freud? Well, and why do you hate your mother? Because that was always the, the cause. Paul Rosenberg has this incredible article called Revisiting Parenthood After a Century of Socialism and Freud. And there are some observations he makes here that I thought were good enough I would share them with you. You know, you do with them as you wish. I just thought they were kind of noteworthy. Paul Rosenberg says, We all know that parenthood has been publicly trashed over the past half century. The larger culture portrays fathers as dolts and full-time moms as second-class women. These ideas, hammered endlessly and over decades, have had their effects. Now, he says the big drivers of this abuse have been socialism and Freudian beliefs. Now, he says, I'll explain below, but let's be clear on the fact that both socialism and Freud's it's your parents' fault can and must be thrown aside. We don't need to keep arguing the same points simply because dogmatists in marble buildings refuse to see reality. He says, if you're not convinced that these twin gods of the 20th century preached ideas that failed at horrifying costs, please be honestly convinced first. But he says, at this point, I think that most adults understand the truth of this. Socialism was a failure of the highest order, and Freudian ideas have failed both at large and small scales. So he says, we should be convinced of something else. People still espousing these ideas are not to be taken as serious thinkers. Now he says, be kind to them if you can, but stop wasting your time on them. And here's the explanation that he goes into. He says, Marx and Freud became the true gods of the 20th century for the same reason. They gave people a way to evade responsibility. Now, it was a century when methods of laying guilt upon others raced to popularity, especially if they were said to be scientific. 
The situation came about because over that same period of time, men and women lost their ability to comprehend the larger world. Now, this is how the process went, in brief. The ways of the 19th century, a confident time, were being made impractical by the new financial systems. The old mating strategy, good boy goes out and makes his nest egg, good girl marries him, became impossible. And so young people either had to ridicule it or judge themselves unfit for mating. Farm work was vanishing due to agricultural machinery. Millions of people were left feeling vulnerable in a new situation. Good jobs were found in factories where workers became interchangeable parts and their agency was diminished. Mass media was thrust into the minds of millions. And these changes continued until society was seen as the true entity and the individual a mere atom of it or in it. Now, Rosenberg says a person's choices were primarily affected by family, friends, and neighbors in the 19th century. Those links withered over the 20th, leaving most people unmoored and foundering in cross-currents. I see nothing that he outlines there that, uh, that sounds disagreeable or sounds like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally implausible for what happened. That seems like a pretty accurate recounting. And, you know, maybe it doesn't perfectly explain everything, but I think it, it comes pretty close. It comes real close, in fact. Now, he says, again, briefly, here's how socialism and Freudians affected the family. Now, he says, at first, and I'm dealing mainly with the USSR and its sycophants, but uh, the socialists promoted free love and open marriage. But then they pulled back a bit, seemingly of necessity. This was done to uproot the traditional family, of course, which became isolated, atomized individuals, seldom opposed them, while strong families frequently did. But it was always about raw, naked power. The idea being that socialist governments continually undercut families. Now, Freud's model of laying the blame on, for almost everything on one's parents never really healed the people who trusted in it. Freudian therapy is justly noted for keeping people enmeshed with their childhood issues, real or imagined, for decades on end, but it's pretty well abandoned these days. Now, we'll come back to this in just a few moments. But the idea is, we blame mom and dad still. The idea for blaming them, it hasn't gone out of fashion just yet. So why does the family matter? Why should we be doing what we can to strengthen it? We'll examine that, just the other side of our messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from Paul Rosenberg. Um, this is about, uh, well, it's about revisiting parenthood after a century of socialism and Freud. And hopefully it's pretty easy to understand that, uh, you know, socialist governments, they do not like competing authority, even parental authority. And this is one of the reasons why they, they sought to undermine it. And you can you can hear how Marx looked at the family. He looked at family relationships and family dynamics as why this is even more an example of exploitation and, you know, the oppressor oppressing those beneath them. I don't know how you answer that, but, uh, gee, I wonder if anybody, you know, historically could ever find something good to say about families. Yeah. Actually, Paul Rosenberg says, look, it's time finally to revisit parenthood. 
blaming your parents and parenthood for whatever ails you has passed its expiration date. Now, his take is this. He says, we may not understand everything that's going on, but we, it's clear that the bad things in the world are not our fault. More than that, we know whose fault it is. It's a large, distant class of overlords and their partners. And if it's not our fault anymore, then really it's not our mom and dad's fault either. Once that becomes clear, he says it's easy to see that dads are mostly decent and noble men laboring against the currents to do right for their children. And likewise, that moms risk not only their bodies to create us, but work and suffer endlessly to make us happier and better people. Moms and dads make mistakes, of course, because they're human. All of us make mistakes, but he says no one, and certainly not some political operative, will come close to proving lo- or providing rather loving, benevolent, and enduring service to children better than an even average parent. Good men and good women are produced by good families, not by government services. In a face-off between the average bureaucratic solution and the average family, the family wins hands down. And Paul Rosenberg says we should be adamant or we should become adamant on this point. So here to close are a handful of quotations, mostly from the former days when parenthood was valued. Will Durant from Transition said, I felt more keenly than before the need of a philosophy that would do justice to the infinite vitality of nature. In the laughter and play of children, in the love and devotion of youth, in the restless ambition of fathers and the lifelong sacrifice of mothers. In all things, I saw the passion for life, passion of life, rather, for growth and greatness, the drama of everlasting creation. By the way, I don't know if you have read anything by Will or Will and Ariel Durant, but their story of civilization series is remarkable. And he's not coming at it from a a particularly religious point of view. He's just looking at the facts, trying to recount what works. But that was then. That was before everybody was woke. So obviously he has a little bit different take. Here's one from Alfred Tennyson from The Princess. Happy he is with such a mother. Faith in womankind beats with his blood and trust in all things high comes easy to him. And though he trip and fall, he shall not bind his soul with clay. Here's one from Ian Morgan Cron. A boy needs a father to show him how to be in the world. He needs to be given swagger. Taught how to read a map so that he can recognize the roads that lead to life and the paths that lead to death. Know how to know how to know what love requires, rather, and where to find steel in the heart when life makes demands on us that are greater than we think we can endure. Oh my goodness. That last line. I'm sorry. Contrast this with the mentality of your words offend me. Your ideas offend me. Your white male privilege offends me. I must find a safe space. You must be banished. You cannot speak. You cannot do this. You must call me by these pronouns. Compare that with where to find steel in the heart when life makes demands on us that are greater than we think we can endure. Yeah. No comparison, right? Here's one from Mrs. Sigourney from the Mother of Washington. And to say to mothers what a holy charge is theirs, with what a kingly power their love might rule the fountains of the newborn mind. Here's a Jewish proverb, actually a couple of them. God couldn't be everywhere, so he created mothers. He that does a good deed blesses his neighbor. He that adopts a child blesses God. I love Paul Rosenberg's take on stuff. Number one, he's very insightful. 
I think the man sees things uh, very, very clearly and explains what can be difficult and sometimes uh, convoluted topics that, that people, you know, prefer to keep a little bit muddy. I don't know. It gives them job security. Paul is a great guy to just spell it out very plainly. But there's a kindness. There's a, there's a gentleness that comes through in his writing that I don't see with a lot of other writers. I've tried to emulate his writing in, in this respect, and I haven't always done well, but I, I really believe that's, that's the better way to open minds. So there's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Please consider taking a look at it and sharing it uh, in your circle of influence. All right, moving on to our next bit of information here. Uh, We often tell ourselves, or at least we hear people say, you know, taxes and regulations, well, that's just the price we pay for living in a civilized society. But that always leaves me wondering, okay, is it possible to have too much of a good thing? Anthony Gill has written a very timely reminder about how the neighborhood lemonade stand is a classic example of free enterprise at work. And after reading this, I realized, you know what? I have very powerful motivation now to stop and patronize these stands rather than simply driving by. So Anthony Gill, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says summer is here. And with COVID-based restrictions on fun finally receding, we hope, A return to normalcy promises the ubiquitous picnics, softball games at sidewalk lemonade stands run by kids on their vacation away from school. But wait a minute. Not all of those great American activities may be legal. Indeed, those little entrepreneurs selling refreshing cups of lemony lusciousness may be violating a gaggle of government regulations. Country Time Lemonade, which provides business assistance to kids seeking to dip their toes into the retail beverage marketplace has counted only 16 states where it is legal to sell lemonade from a makeshift front yard stand. California, which has been chasing away business in droves, is one of these states, amazingly. So go west, young entrepreneur. (laughs) Nevertheless, he says, it's not just the lemonade stands are illegal in 34 states, but they're actually watchdog busybodies who will call the authorities to shut down these shady enterprises before Mother Nature reigns on their parade. And he gives you at least four different examples of this happening. And then he asks, what would we do without citizen snitches and fast-acting bureaucrats who bring social order back to a nation spiraling out of control? I know that's tongue-in-cheek, but he's, he's got a point here. This is troubling news. Police showing up to shut down the local lemonade stand teaches children that entrepreneurship is punished in society. It teaches them that their creativity can only be realized in the dark shadows of the underground economy. Squeeze-easies, the non-alcoholic version of speakeasies in the 1930s. This is all the more alarming when one realizes that many of the news stories that he links to involved inner-city youth who were doing their best to overcome difficult economic circumstances. Not surprisingly, police and city bureaucrats showing up to put the kibosh on these stands raise the hackles of many parents and sane citizens who see this as a theatrical overstepping of government authority. Reacting to the outrage, Colorado, Wisconsin, and Texas became the most recent states to liberalize their laws regulating underage entrepreneurs. By the way, he asks, when did we ever start thinking commercial activity had an age limit? For instance, he says in his home state of Washington, they also considered similar reforms, although the bill stalled in the legislature when the representatives went home to avoid coronavirus. Now, that's the good news. 
Adults are starting to recognize that government regulations can be a significant barrier to youthful fun and lessons in financial responsibility. But he says if we're outraged at such onerous regulations being placed on the commercial gusto of children, then shouldn't we be similarly upset by government intervention blocking the entrepreneurial will of adults? This is surprisingly an uncomfortable question to ask of people who will argue adamantly for the need of strict regulatory codes being imposed on their local businesses. After all, they're making money. As if that somehow changes the nature of what they're doing. We'll be back in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back talking about uh, lemonade stands and, yeah, how for some people the lemonade stand, well, you know, it's a good idea, but if it's not properly overseen by government, why, there could be some real issues here, and that's why they'll call the authorities in. And in some cases, the authorities will respond and shut down children who are, you know, (laughs) trying out their, their entrepreneurial wings for the first time. I know there are people who can make the, you know this compelling case. Well, Brian, now this is dangerous. I mean, what if somebody, what if somebody were to inadvertently, oh, I don't know, uh, mix some kind of a cleaning solution in with their lemonade? Oh, wait, that was a legitimate restaurant that happened just a few years ago, and uh, yeah, they they got sued because a worker made an, uh, a huge mistake and put this cleaning solution instead of sugar into their iced tea. It was really serious stuff. But my point is. Bad things will sometimes happen. Rarely, I think, would you find a lemonade stand somehow posed a threat to public health. More often than not, it comes down to this blanket approach of, well, you know, they got to go through the right hoops and make sure they have a food handler's permit, a business license, they're paying the appropriate taxes, and someone will always slip in the line, you know, it wouldn't be fair to the other businesses if we let the kids get away with this. I guess because their idea of fair is... Hey, everybody should be suffering equally as opposed to, yeah, why do we uh, why do we put all these burdens on these other businesses in the first place and pretend like that's the only way they can be legit? Perhaps another question for another time. Back to the article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. Again, this is Anthony Gill writing about how taking a lemonade stand for free enterprise is the right thing to do. And one of the things he points out here is he, he points out how, um, first of all, there are people who will argue adamantly for that need for strict regulatory codes being imposed on local businesses. But he says, when I recently and sarcastically reminded members of my local community that lemonade stands are still illegal in Washington state, they poo-pooed him for being a killjoy. And he says, rightfully so. But when I further probed why regular businesses must operate under the licensing and regulatory codes that prevent kids from getting into the business, the beverage business... Well, the conversation turned. If we don't regulate restaurants, all hell would break loose. Really? He asks, why would we think that? The reasons for prohibiting our youth from selling lemonade and other beverages include concerns over health and sanitation, noise and traffic congestion, and a general desire to have government give you the stamp of approval. In other words, licensing to keep consumers protected from ne'er-do-wells and charlatans. 
However, when it comes to a comparison between the 10-year-olds who set up a temporary business or temporary beverage business, rather, and a restaurateur wanting to make her enterprise a long-term venture, who do we think will be more devoted to health and safety? He says, I don't know how many readers have raised youngins, but my experience informs me that the age where a child is more interested in selling lemonade does not coincide with the age of optimal hygiene. Of course, there could be parental oversight ensuring that all precautions are taken in the preparation of the drinks and snacks being sold, but that assumes the parent is good at monitoring the chaos that usually ensues and that they actually care. Restaurant owners, though, have a strong incentive to provide the best experience for their customers, and that includes a reasonably clean and sanitary environment with a product that doesn't sicken their diners. Failure to do so is likely to run the business into the ground as word spreads throughout the community that the restaurant is subpar. The obvious objection here is that there are many establishments that appear to be below reasonable hygienic standards. But it should be noted that they are most likely doing so under a regulatory regime that requires them to be up to par to begin with. Now, it may be more of a general concern with personal reputation than the regulatory shadow of the state that guides a restaurateur's guide or desire to uh, maintain sufficiently sanitary standards. He also points out it should be noted there exists a niche market for the seemingly unsanitary greasy spoon restaurants that can offer low prices to people who are not as concerned about cleanliness. And by the way, the present author, he says, happens to be one of those customers. This is a good point. And I would take... A good greasy spoon diner over a very expensive, but, uh, you know, and very sterile and utterly overpriced restaurant. There is such a thing apparently as clean enough. Not everybody's going to feel that way, but uh, I don't know. I've had some pretty good food from some pretty hole in the wall kind of places. Going back to uh, Anthony Gill's article, he says, Lest one think that businesses left unregulated will try to cut costs and produce unhealthy or dangerous products to bolster their profits, there's a strong history of just the opposite. Underwriters Laboratory is a classic case where businesses seek out the stamp of approval from a private, meaning non-government watchdog, to ensure consumers that their products are designed safety. And as a scuba diver, he says, who's aware that there are a hundred ugly ways to die underwater without the proper safety equipment and guidance, he relies on the private monitoring of PADI, Patty, to help him choose which dive shops to patronize. Add to this the business roundtable, the Better Business Bureau, and specialized trade groups that help keep businesses on the up and up without resorting to coercive government regulations. Now, lemonade stands don't have these private backdrops, but restaurants voluntarily associate with them. Likewise, he says, with other externality problems like traffic, congestion, noise, children operating a business on a short-term basis, perhaps a weekend, if not just a few hours until boredom sets in, have little care for how traffic patterns or noise will chase away future customers. Established businesses do, though. And while there may be some collective actions that or action problems for amongst enterprises to deal with these issues, he says local chambers of commerce do a great deal to coordinate the interests of business owners in such a way that benefits customers. As for merely getting the permission of government to run a business, well, the issue of licensing is one that's fraught with all sorts of rent-seeking behavior where a predictable Let me try that again. Rent-seeking behavior wherein pre-existing businesses seek to limit the entry of newcomers in a way that doesn't benefit consumers. And again, he gives multiple examples of this. And says this is only possible if they can leverage the power of government to restrict their competitors. 
So if we think it's silly to require occupational and or business licenses for some kid's lemonade stand, why should we think it's a good idea for a food truck, a barbershop, or a gymnasium? The summertime lemonade stand serves more than just refreshing beverages. It stands as a quintessential reminder of how people of all ages love to barter and exchange, as Adam Smith once reminded us. It's in our nature. If we only had the imagination to perceive a world free from commercial barriers, much like our young entrepreneurs do, the world would be much less sour and much more sweet. I don't know. The guy turns a nice phrase. This is Anthony Gill, professor of political economy at University of Washington. And uh, this is a piece written for the American Institute for Economic Research. By the way, he credits Amelia Carlson with coining the term squeezeesies. But I like it. It's clever. And, and it works. All right, moving on. Got a couple of different ones here. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna share this one first just because this is this is one that really hits home for me. Do you remember during the uh, stay-at-home orders last year how, you know, there were people who told us, well, now, come on, I know it's hard to do and it seems unreasonable and maybe heavy-handed. You know, when police in California were, for instance, writing tickets to people sitting in their cars watching the sun go down at the beach. Nope, you're not supposed to be out here. And they would write them tickets and basically flex on them and show them you have to obey whatever someone in authority has said. And the way that this was justified for a lot of people was, well, at least it's saving lives somehow. Well, Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education says, uh, not so fast. We just got more proof that back at that. I'm sorry, stay at home orders lethally backfired. They didn't reduce overall mortality. They may have even increased it. Here's what he says. Brad Palumbo says life under lockdown was hard for all of us. From economic destruction to social isolation, the cost of restrictive government policies intended to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 have been steep. But now, yet another study suggests that benefits wrought by our collective sacrifice were negligible at best, and that stay-at-home orders may even have increased overall mortality. In a new paper, economists from the University of Southern California and the RAND Corporation examined the effectiveness of shelter-in-place or SIP mandates, a.k.a. stay-at-home orders, using data from 43 countries and all 50 U.S. states. Now, the experts analyzed not just deaths from COVID-19, but also excess deaths, a measure that compares overall deaths from all causes to a historical baseline. The authors explained that lockdown orders may have had lethal, unintended consequences in their own right, such as increased drug overdoses, worsened, worsened mental health problems, increased child abuse, deadly delays in non-COVID medical care, and more. So to find out whether stay-at-home orders truly helped more than they hurt, examining excess deaths, not just the pandemic outcomes, is key. And Brad Palumbo points out the results are not pretty. We're going to hit the pause button here because we're coming up on the break. So we'll come back here in just a few moments and we will continue with his article. By the way, if you have the time and interest, you will find a link to his article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are show notes for June 21st, 2021. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from Brad Palumbo. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. I think most of us remember the stay-at-home orders, and they varied from place to place. Not every place locked it down. Not every place, you know, went out there and wrote tickets or otherwise enforced it, you know, with the threat of violence at the hands of the police if you were to stray from your home. But a lot did. And the justification was offered was that this is just trying to save lives. So there has been time to study this. And economists from the University of Southern California and also Rand Corporation looked at the effectiveness of these so-called shelter-in-place mandates, the stay-at-home orders. They used data from 43 countries, all 50 U.S. states. And interestingly enough, they didn't just justify deaths from or use just the deaths from COVID-19 in order to examine whether they worked or not. They also looked at excess deaths from things like drug overdoses, worsens mental health problems, child abuse, you know, other delays in non-COVID medical care. And the results are not pretty. Here's what Brad Palumbo reports. We failed to find that shelter-in-place policies saved lives. That's what the authors report here. Indeed, they conclude that in the weeks following the implementation of these policies, excess mortality actually increases even though it had typically been declining before the orders took effect. And across all countries, the study finds that a one-week increase in the length of stay-at-home policies corresponds with 2.7 more excess deaths per 100,000 people. The lockdown simply didn't work. The authors explain we failed to find that countries or U.S. states that implemented SIP policies shelter in place earlier and in which SIP policies had longer to operate had lower excess deaths than countries or U.S. states that were slower to implement SIP policies. And by the way, their finding is no outlier. Brad Palumbo says a number of other credible studies, and he links to them, have similarly included that lockdowns were ineffective at slowing the spread of COVID-19. Plus, other research now shows that most COVID-19 spread occurred at home, not out in the world, making stay-at-home orders all the more absurd in hindsight. Now, of course, there's tremendous resistance to acknowledging the fact that the sacrifice we all, to varying extents, endured evidently accomplished nothing. In fact, it may have left us worse off. But we must acknowledge and grapple with this painful truth to ward off similar mistakes in the future. So the takeaway here is not just that stay-at-home orders are ineffective public policy. It's that politicians will always claim they can solve our problems if just given enough centralized power. But we must not fall for their rhetoric and focus only on the seen, tangible benefits of government action, like potentially slowing the spread of COVID-19. He says we must also consider the unseen and unexpected second-order effects and consequences. Amen. There'll be a link in the show notes, which you can access at the com. Well worth your time. All right. One final note. Uh, John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute has been a voice of warning for a long time. And his latest column on the FBI's growing tendency to save us from plots that it has created is really eye-opening. It'll make some people uncomfortable enough. I'm sure they're, they're going to want to, I don't really want to read that. But if you can agree with the idea that, hey, government shouldn't be in the habit of creating crime in order to justify its existence, you may find this very worthwhile. The article is titled, The FBI's Mafia-Style Justice. To fight crime, the FBI sponsors 
15 crimes a day. And he starts with a quote from Nietzsche. This is, this is a pretty popular one from Nietzsche. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. John Whitehead says almost every tyranny being perpetrated by the U.S. government against the citizenry, purportedly to keep us safe and the nation secure, has come about as some sort of threat manufactured in one way or another by our own government. Think about it. Cyber warfare, terrorism, biochemical attacks, the nuclear arms race, surveillance, the drug wars, domestic extremism, the COVID-19 pandemic. In almost every instance... The U.S. government, often spearheaded by the FBI, has, in its typical Machiavellian fashion, sown the seeds of terror domestically and internationally in order to expand its own totalitarian powers. Who's the biggest black market buyer and stockpiler of cyber weapons? In other words, weaponized malware that can be used to hack into computer systems, spy on citizens, and destabilize vast computer networks? The answer is the U.S. government. Which country has a history of secretly testing out dangerous weapons and technologies on its own citizens. The U.S. government. By the way, there, there's, there's a link to each one of these that uh, will further back up what he's asserting. Who is the largest weapons manufacturer and exporter in the world such that they are literally arming the world? The U.S. government. Which country has conducted secret experiments on an unsuspecting populace, citizens and non-citizens alike, making healthy people sick by spraying them with chemicals, injecting them with infectious diseases, and exposing them to airborne toxins. That would be the U.S. government. What country has a pattern and practice of entrapment that involves targeting vulnerable individuals, feeding them with propaganda, know-how, and weapons intended to turn them into terrorists, then arresting them as part of an elaborately orchestrated counterterrorism sting? Yes, that would be the U.S. government as well. Are you getting the picture yet? The U.S. government isn't protecting us from terrorism. The U.S. government is creating the terror. In fact, it is the source of the terror. Consider that this very same government has taken every bit of technology sold to us as being in our best interest, GPS devices, surveillance, non-lethal weapons, etc., and used it against us to track, control, and trap us. So why is the government doing this? The answer is our money, power, and total domination. John, Rutherford, John Whitehead rather, from the Rutherford Institute says, we're not dealing with a government that exists to serve its people, protect their liberties, and ensure their happiness. Rather, these are the diabolical machinations of a make-works program carried out on an epic scale, whose only purpose is to keep the powers that be permanently and profitably employed. Case in point, the FBI. The government's henchmen have become the embodiment of how power, once acquired, can be so easily corrupted and abused. Indeed, far from being tough on crime, FBI agents are also among the nation's most notorious lawbreakers. Whether the FBI is planning undercover agents in churches, synagogues, and mosques, issuing fake emergency letters to gain access to Americans' phone records, using intimidation tactics to silence Americans who are critical of the government, or persuading impressionable individuals to plot acts of terror and then entrapping them. The overall impression of the nation's secret police force is that of a well-dressed thug flexing its muscles and doing the boss's dirty work. For example, this is the agency that used an undercover agent slash informant to seek out and groom an impressionable young man. Cultivating his friendship, gaining his sympathy, stoking his outrage over the injustices perpetrated by the U.S. government, 
then enlisting his help to blow up the Herald Square subway station. Now, despite the fact that Sharhawar Matan Siraj ultimately refused to plant a bomb at the train station, he was arrested for conspiring to do so at the urging of his FBI informant and used to bolster the government's track record in foiling terrorist plots. Of course, no mention was made of the part the government played in fabricating the plot, recruiting a would-be bomber, and setting him up to take the fall. This is the government's answer to pre-crime. First, foster activism by stoking feelings of outrage and injustice by way of secret agents and informants. Second, recruit activists to carry out a plot secretly concocted by the government to challenge what they see as government corruption. And finally, arrest those activists for conspiring against the government before they can actually commit a crime. It's a diabolical plot, rather, with far-reaching consequences for every segment of the population, no matter what one's political leanings. As Rosini Alley writes for the New York Times magazine, the government's approach to counterterrorism erodes constitutional protections for everyone. By blurring the lines between speech and action, and by broadening the scope of who is classified as a threat. So the FBI is not an agency that appears to understand, let alone respect the limits of the U.S. Constitution. Now, he goes on into a few other different examples of this, but I want to cut to the chase. John White has suffice it to, says, suffice it to say that when and if a true history of the FBI is ever written, it will track not only the rise of the American police state, but it will also chart the decline of freedom in America. How a nation that once abided by the rule of law and held government accountable for its actions, has steadily devolved into a police state where justice is one-sided. A corporate elite runs the show. Representative government is a mockery. Police are extensions of the military. Surveillance is rampant. Privacy is extinct. And the law is little more than a tool for the government to browbeat the people into compliance. This is how tyranny rises and freedom falls. But he says we can persuade ourselves that life is still good, America is still beautiful, and that we the people are still free. But as science fiction writer Philip K. Dick warned, don't believe what you see. It's an enthralling and destructive evil snare. This is The Brian Hyde Show.